Chapter Twelve, Part B of Roderick Hudson by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was true that she herself helped him little to definite conclusions, and that he remained in puzzled doubt as to whether these happy touches were still a matter of the heart or had become simply a matter of the conscience. He watched for signs that she rejoiced in Roderick's renewed acceptance of her society, but it seemed to him that she was on her guard against interpreting it too largely. It was now her turn, he fancied that he sometimes gathered from certain nameless indications of glance and tone and gesture, it was now her turn to be indifferent, to care for other things. Again and again Roland asked himself what these things were that Miss Garland might be supposed to care for, to the injury of ideal constancy, and again, having designated them, he divided them into two portions. One was that larger experience in general, which had come to her with her arrival in Europe, the vague sense, borne in upon her imagination, that there were more things one might do with one's life than youth and ignorance and Northampton had dreamt of the revision of old pledges in the light of new emotions. The other was in the experience, in especial, of Roland's—what? Here Roland always paused, in perfect sincerity, to measure afresh his possible claim to the young girl's regard. What might he call it? It had been more than civility, and yet it had been less than devotion. It had spoken of a desire to serve, but it had said nothing of a hope of reward. Nevertheless, Rowland's fancy hovered about the idea that it was recompensable, and his reflections ended in a reverie which perhaps did not define it, but at least on each occasion added a little to its volume. Since Miss Garland had asked him as a sort of favour to herself to come also to Switzerland, he thought it possible she might let him know whether he seemed to have effectively served her. The days passed without her doing so and at last Roland walked away to an isolated eminence some five miles from the inn, and murmured to the silent rocks that she was ungrateful. Listening nature seemed not to contradict him, so that, on the morrow, he asked the young girl, with an infinitesimal touch of irony, whether it struck her that his deflection from his Florentine plan had been attended with brilliant results. "'Why, we are delighted that you are here with us!' she answered. He was anything but satisfied with this. It seemed to imply that she had forgotten that she had solemnly asked him to come. He reminded her of her request, and recalled the place and time. That evening on the terrace, late, after Mrs. Hudson had gone to bed, and Roderick being absent. She perfectly remembered, but the memory seemed to trouble her. "'I am afraid your kindness has been a great charge upon you,' she said. You wanted very much to do something else. I wanted above all things to oblige you, and I made no sacrifice. But if I had made an immense one, it would be more than made up to me by any assurance that I have helped Roderick into a better mood." She was silent a moment, and then, "'Why do you ask me?' she said. "'You are able to judge quite as well as I.' Roland blushed. He desired to justify himself in the most veracious manner. The truth is, he said, that I am afraid I care only in the second place for Roderick's holding up his head. What I care for in the first place is your happiness. I don't know why that should be, she answered. I have certainly done nothing to make you so much my friend. If you were to tell me you intended to leave us to-morrow, I am afraid I should not venture to ask you to stay. 
But whether you go or stay, let us not talk of Roderick. But that, said Rowland, doesn't answer my question. Is he better? No, she said, and turned away. He was careful not to tell her that he intended to leave them. One day, shortly after this, as the two young men sat at the inn door watching the sunset, which on that evening was very striking and lurid, Rowland made an attempt to sound his companion's present sentiment touching Christina Light. "'I wonder where she is,' he said, "'and what sort of a life she is leading her prince.' Roderick at first made no response. He was watching a figure on the summit of some distant rocks opposite to them. The figure was apparently descending into the valley, and in relief against the crimson screen of the western sky it looked gigantic. "'Christina Light?' Roderick at last repeated, as if arousing himself from a reverie, where she is, it's extraordinary how little I care. Have you then completely got over it? To this Roderick made no direct reply. He sat brooding a while. She's a humbug, he presently exclaimed. Possibly, said Rowland, but I have known worse ones. She disappointed me, Roderick continued in the same tone. Had she, then, really given you hopes? Oh, don't recall it, Roderick cried. Why the devil should I think of it? It was only three months ago, but it seems like ten years. His friend said nothing more, and after a while he went on of his own accord. I believed there was a future in it all. She pleased me, pleased me. And when an artist, such as I was, is pleased, you know? And he paused again. You never saw her as I did. You never heard her in her great moments. But there is no use talking about that. At first she wouldn't regard me seriously. She chaffed me and made light of me. But at last I forced her to admit I was a great man. Think of that, sir. Christina Light called me a great man. A great man was what she was looking for, and we agreed to find our happiness for life in each other. To please me, she promised not to marry till I gave her leave. I was not in a marrying way myself, but it was damnation to think of another man possessing her. To spare my sensibilities, she promised to turn off her prince, and the idea of her doing so made me as happy as to see a perfect statue shaping itself in the block. You have seen how she kept her promise. When I learned it, it was as if the statue had suddenly cracked and turned hideous. She died for me, like that, and he snapped his fingers. Was it wounded vanity, disappointed desire, betrayed confidence? I'm sure I don't know. You certainly have some name for it. The poor girl did the best she could, said Rowland. If that was her best, so much the worse for her. I have hardly thought of her these two months, but I have not forgiven her. Well, you may believe that you are avenged. I can't think of her as happy. I don't pity her, said Roderick. Then he relapsed into silence and the two sat watching the colossal figure as it made its way downward along the jagged silhouette of the rocks. "'Who is this mighty man?' cried Roderick at last. "'And what is he coming down upon us for? We are small people here, and we can't undertake to keep company with giants.' "'Wait till we meet him on our own level,' said Rowland, "'and perhaps he will not overtop us.' "'For ten minutes, at least,' Roderick rejoined, "'he will have been a great man.' At this moment the figure sank beneath the horizon line, and became invisible in the uncertain light. Suddenly Roderick said, I would like to see her once more, simply to look at her. 
I would not advise it, said Rowland. It was her beauty that did it, Roderick went on. It was all her beauty. In comparison, the rest was nothing. What befooled me was to think of it as my property. And I had made it mine. No one else had studied it as I had. No one else understood it. What does that stick of a Casamassima know about it at this hour? I should like to see it just once more. It's the only thing in the world of which I can say so. I would not advise it, Roland repeated. That's right, dear Roland, said Roderick. Don't advise. That's no use now. The dusk, meanwhile, had thickened, and they had not perceived a figure approaching them across the open space in front of the house. Suddenly it stepped into the circle of light projected from the door and windows, and they beheld little Sam Singleton stopping to stare at them. He was the giant whom they had seen descending along the rocks. When this was made apparent, Roderick was seized with a fit of intense hilarity. It was the first time he had laughed in three months. Singleton, who carried a knapsack and walking-staff, received from Roland the friendliest welcome. He was in the serenest possible humour, and if in the way of luggage his knapsack contained nothing but a comb and a second shirt, he produced from it a dozen admirable sketches. He had been trudging over half Switzerland, and making everywhere the most vivid pictorial notes. They were mostly in a box at Interlaken, and in gratitude for Roland's appreciation, he presently telegraphed for his box, which, according to the excellent Swiss method, was punctually delivered by post. The nights were cold, and our friends, with three or four other chance sojourners, sat indoors over a fire of logs. Even with Roderick sitting moodily in the outer shadow, they made a sympathetic little circle, and they turned over Singleton's drawings, while he perched in the chimney-corner, blushing and grinning, with his feet on the rounds of his chair. He had been pedestrianizing for six weeks, and he was glad to rest a while at Engelthal. It was an economic repose, however, for he sallied forth every morning with his sketching tools on his back, in search of material for new studies. Roderick's hilarity, after the first evening, had subsided, and he watched the little painter's serene activity with a gravity that was almost portentous. Singleton, who was not in the secret of his personal misfortunes, still treated him with timid frankness as the rising star of American art. Roderick had said to Rowland at first that Singleton reminded him of some curious little insect with a remarkable mechanical instinct in its antennae, but as the days went by it was apparent that the modest landscapist's unflagging industry grew to have an oppressive meaning for him. It pointed a moral, and Roderick used to sit and con the moral, as he saw it figured in Singleton's bent back on the hot hillsides, protruding from beneath his white umbrella. One day he wandered up a long slope and overtook him as he sat at work. Singleton related the incident afterwards to Rowland, who, after giving him in Rome a hint of Roderick's aberrations, had strictly kept his own counsel. "'Are you always like this?' said Roderick, in almost sepulchral accents. "'Like this,' repeated Singleton, blinking confusedly, with an alarmed conscience. "'You remind me of a watch that never runs down. If one listens hard, one hears you always. Tick, 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 tick.' "'Oh, I see,' said Singleton, beaming ingenuously. I am very equable. You are very equable, yes. And do you find it pleasant to be equable? 
Singleton turned and grinned more brightly while he sucked the water from his camel's hair brush. Then, with a quickened sense of his indebtedness to a providence that had endowed him with intrinsic facilities, "'Oh, delightful!' he exclaimed. Roderick stood looking at him in a moment. "'Damnation!' he said at last, solemnly, and turned his back. One morning, shortly after this, Roland and Roderick took a long walk. They had walked before in a dozen different directions, but they had not yet crossed a charming little wooded pass, which shut in their valley on one side, and descended into the vale of Engelberg. In coming from Lucerne they had approached their inn by this path, and feeling that they knew it, had hitherto neglected it in favour of untrodden ways. But at last the list of these was exhausted, and Roland proposed a walk to Engelberg as a novelty. The place is half bleak and half pastoral. A huge white monastery rises abruptly from the green floor of the valley, and complicates its picturesqueness with an element rare in Swiss scenery. Hard by is a group of chalets and inns, with the usual appurtenances of a prosperous Swiss resort, lean brown guides in baggy homespun, lounging under carved wooden galleries, stacks of alpenstocks in every doorway, sun-scorched Englishmen without shirt-collars. Our two friends sat a while at the door of an inn, discussing a pint of wine, and then Roderick, who was indefatigable, announced his intention of climbing to a certain rocky pinnacle which overhung the valley, and according to the testimony of one of the guides, commanded a view of the Lake of Lucerne. To go and come back was only a matter of an hour, but Roland, with the prospect of his homeward trudge before him, confessed to a preference for lounging on his bench, or at most strolling a trifle farther and taking a look at the monastery. Roderick went off alone, and his companion, after a while, bent his steps to the monasterial church. It was remarkable, like most of the churches of Catholic Switzerland, for a hideous style of devotional ornament, but it had a certain cold and musty picturesqueness, and Roland lingered there with some tenderness for alpine piety. While he was near the high altar some people came in at the west door, but he did not notice them, and was presently engaged in deciphering a curious old German epitaph on one of the mural tablets. At last he turned away, wondering whether its syntax or its theology was the more uncomfortable, and, to this infinite surprise, found himself confronted with the Prince and Princess Casamassima. The surprise on Christina's part, for an instant, was equal, and at first she seemed disposed to turn away without letting it give place to a greeting. The prince, however, saluted gravely, and then Christina, in silence, put out her hand. Roland immediately asked whether they were staying at Engelberg, but Christina only looked at him without speaking. The prince answered his questions, and related that they had been making a month's tour in Switzerland, that at Lucerne his wife had been somewhat obstinately indisposed, and that the physician had recommended a week's trial of the tonic air and goat's milk of Engelberg. The scenery, said the prince, was stupendous, but the life was terribly sad, and they had three days more. It was a blessing, he urbanely added, to see a good Roman face. Christina's attitude, her solemn silence, and her penetrating gaze seemed to Roland at first to savour of affectation, but he presently perceived that she was profoundly agitated, and that she was afraid of betraying herself. Do let us leave this hideous edifice, she said. There are things here that set one's teeth on edge. 
They moved slowly to the door, and when they stood outside, in the sunny coolness of the valley, she turned to Roland and said, I am extremely glad to see you. Then she glanced about her, and observed against the wall of the church an old stone seat. She looked at Prince Casamassima a moment, and he smiled more intensely, Roland thought, than the occasion demanded. I wish to sit here, she said, and speak to Mr. Mallet alone. At your pleasure, dear friend, said the prince. The tone of each was measured to Roland's ear, but that of Christina was dry, and that of her husband was splendidly urbane. Roland remembered that the Cavaliere Giacosa had told him that Mrs. Light's candidate was thoroughly a prince, and our friend wondered how he relished a peremptory accent. Casamassima was an Italian of the undemonstrative type, but Roland nevertheless divined that, like other princes before him, he had made the acquaintance of the thing called compromise. "'Shall I come back?' he asked, with the same smile. "'In half an hour,' said Christina. In the clear outer light, Roland's first impression of her was that she was more beautiful than ever, and yet in three months she could hardly have changed. The change was in Roland's own vision of her, which that last interview, on the eve of her marriage, had made unprecedentedly tender. "'How came you here?' she asked. "'Are you staying in this place?' "'I am staying at Engelthal, some ten miles away. I walked over.' "'Are you alone?' "'I am with Mr. Hudson.' "'Is he here with you?' "'He went half an hour ago to climb a rock for a view. "'And his mother and that young girl, where are they?' "'They are also at Engelthal.' "'What do you do there?' "'What do you do here?' said Roland, smiling. "'I count the minutes till my week is up. I hate mountains. They depress me to death. I am sure Miss Garland likes them.' "'She is very fond of them, I believe.' "'You believe? Don't you know? But I have given up trying to imitate Miss Garland,' said Christina. "'You surely need imitate no one.' "'Don't say that,' she said gravely. So you have walked ten miles this morning, and you are to walk back again? Back again to supper. And Mr. Hudson, too? Mr. Hudson especially. He is a great walker. You men are happy, Christina cried. I believe I should enjoy the mountains if I could do such things. It is sitting still and having them scowled down at you. Prince Casamassima never rides. He only goes on a mule. He was carried up the fowl-horn on a litter. On a litter, said Roland, in one of those machines, a chaise à porteur, like a woman. Roland received this information in silence. It was equally unbecoming to either relish or deprecate its irony. Is Mr. Hudson to join you again? Will he come here? Christina asked. I shall soon begin to expect him. What shall you do when you leave Switzerland? Christina continued. Shall you go back to Rome? I rather doubt it. My plans are very uncertain. They depend upon Mr. Hudson, eh? In a great measure. I want you to tell me about him. Is he still in that perverse state of mind that afflicted you so much? Roland looked at her mistrustfully without answering. He was indisposed instinctively to tell her that Roderick was unhappy. It was possible she might offer to help him back to happiness. She immediately perceived his hesitation. I see no reason why we should not be frank, she said. I should think we were excellently placed for that sort of thing. You remember that formerly I cared very little what I said, don't you? 
Well, I care absolutely not at all now. I say what I please, I do what I please. How did Mr. Hudson receive the news of my marriage? Very badly, said Rowland. With rage and reproaches, and, as Rowland hesitated again, with silent contempt? I can tell you but little. He spoke to me on the subject, but I stopped him. I told him it was none of his business or of mine. That was an excellent answer, said Christina softly. Yet it was a little your business, after those sublime protestations I treated you to. I was really very fine that morning, eh? You do yourself injustice, said Rowland. I should be at liberty now to believe you were insincere. What does it matter now whether I was insincere or not? I can't conceive of anything mattering less. I was very fine, isn't it true? You know what I think of you, said Rowland and for fear of being forced to betray his suspicion of the cause of her change, he took refuge in a commonplace. Your mother, I hope, is well? My mother is in the enjoyment of superb health, and may be seen every evening at the casino, at the baths of Lucca, confiding to every newcomer that she has married her daughter to a pearl of a prince. Roland was anxious for news of Mrs. Light's companion and the natural course was frankly to inquire about him. "'And the Cavaliere Giacosa is well?' he asked. Christina hesitated, but she betrayed no other embarrassment. "'The Cavaliere has retired to his native city of Ancona upon a pension for the rest of his natural life. He is a very good old man.' "'I have a great regard for him,' said Roland gravely at the same time that he privately wondered whether the Cavaliere's pension was paid by Prince Casamassima for services rendered in connection with his marriage. Had the Cavaliere received his commission? "'And what do you do?' Roland continued, on leaving this place. "'We go to Italy. We go to Naples.' She rose and stood silent a moment, looking down the valley. The figure of Prince Casamassima appeared in the distance, balancing his white umbrella. As her eyes rested upon it, Roland imagined that he saw something deeper in the strange expression which had lurked in her face while he talked to her. At first he had been dazzled by her blooming beauty, to which the lapse of weeks had only added splendor. Then he had seen a heavier ray in the light of her eye, a sinister intimation of sadness and bitterness. It was the outward mark of her sacrificed ideal. Her eyes grew cold as she looked at her husband and when, after a moment, she turned them upon Roland, they struck him as intensely tragical. He felt a singular mixture of sympathy and dread. He wished to give her a proof of friendship, and yet it seemed to him that she had now turned her face in a direction where friendship was impotent to interpose. She half read his feelings, apparently, and she gave a beautiful, sad smile. "'I hope we may never meet again,' she said and as Roland gave her a protesting look. "'You have seen me at my best. I wish to tell you solemnly I was sincere. I know appearances are against me,' she went on quickly. "'There is a great deal I can't tell you. Perhaps you have guessed it. I care very little. You know, at any rate, I did my best. It wouldn't serve. I was beaten and broken. They were stronger than I. Now it's another affair.' "'It seems to me you have a large chance for happiness yet,' said Roland vaguely. "'Happiness? I mean to cultivate rapture. I mean to go for bliss ineffable. You remember I told you that I was in part the world's and the devil's. 
Now they have taken me all. It was their choice. May they never repent. I shall hear of you, said Rowland. You will hear of me, and whatever you do here, remember this. I was sincere. Prince Casamassima had approached, and Rowland looked at him with a good deal of simple compassion as a part of that world against which Christina had launched her mysterious menace. It was obvious that he was a good fellow, and that he could not, in the nature of things, be a positively bad husband, but his distinguished inoffensiveness only deepened the infelicity of Christina's situation by depriving her defiant attitude of the sanction of relative justice. So long as she had been free to choose, she had esteemed him, but from the moment she was forced to marry him, she had detested him. Rowland read in the young man's elastic Italian mask a profound consciousness of all this, and as he found there also a record of other curious things, of pride, of temper, of bigotry, of an immense heritage of more or less aggressive traditions, he reflected that the matrimonial conjunction of his two companions might be sufficiently prolific in incident. "'You are going to Naples,' Rowland said to the prince by way of conversation. "'We are going to Paris,' Christina interposed, slowly and softly. "'We are going to London. We are going to Vienna. We are going to St. Petersburg.' Prince Casamassima dropped his eyes and fretted the earth with the point of his umbrella. While he engaged Rowland's attention, Christina turned away. When Rowland glanced at her again, he saw a change pass over her face. She was observing something that was concealed from his own eyes by the angle of the church wall. In a moment, Roderick stepped into sight. He stopped short, astonished. His face and figure were jaded, his garments dusty. He looked at Christina from head to foot, and then slowly his cheek flushed and his eye expanded. Christina returned his gaze, and for some moments there was a singular silence. "'You don't look well,' Christina said at last. Roderick answered nothing. He only looked and looked, as if she had been a statue. "'You are no less beautiful,' he presently cried. She turned away with a smile, and stood a while gazing down the valley. Roderick stared at Prince Casamassima. Christina then put out her hand to Roland. "'Farewell,' she said. "'If you are near me in the future, don't try to see me.' And then, after a pause, in a lower tone, I was sincere. She addressed herself again to Roderick, and asked him some commonplace about his walk. But he said nothing. He only looked at her. Roland at first had expected an outbreak of reproach, but it was evident that the danger was every moment diminishing. He was forgetting everything but her beauty, and as she stood there and let him feast upon it, Roland was sure that she knew it. I won't say farewell to you, she said. We shall meet again. And she moved gravely away. Prince Casamassima took leave courteously of Roland. Upon Roderick he bestowed a bow of exaggerated civility. Roderick appeared not to see it. He was still watching Christina as she passed over the grass. His eyes followed her until she reached the door of her inn. Here she stopped and looked back at him. End of chapter 12, part B.